We're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've come as, chapter, come as far as chapter 5, verse 9. I need to set the stage so we keep things in context. The way that we, that we study here is we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So context is important to us. So in the first eight verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul told us a lot of good stuff. He says there's some things that we should know as a Christian, that we should understand, that we should believe, that we need to know as believers in Jesus Christ, there's something that you need to know. And he tells us the, several things there. The first thing he says is our bodies, our, our flesh, this, this body that you all drug in here this morning, that, that you're carrying around with your arms, your leg, your feet, your head, our bodies. He calls them an earthly tent. Paul was a tent maker so he likens his body to a tent. He says, if our earthly tent is destroyed, he says this, we have a building from God, a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. That's good news, isn't it? If our earthly tent, if our earthly body is destroyed and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a house. Remember a tent, we talked about it last week, that's portable, that's temporary. A building, a structure is permanent, it's grounded, it's built on a strong foundation. He says there's, it's made without hands, it's eternal, and it's waiting for you. But he also told us that these tents, they're going to begin to break down. Those of us that are older have experienced some of that. We understand the creaking of our joints and the breaking down of our bodies and the pain, and, and it happens at different, not only older, it can happen with younger people too, their, their bodies begin to get sick. And he says it's when they get sick, it, it, we, we have a tendency to, they're going to break down, and, and we have a tendency to look forward to our future tents. Because there's a, a permanent structure, a permanent building, we can look forward to it. It's not, someday, let me put it really easy, someday you're going to get rid of this body and get a new one. And that's good news. We get rid of this physical body, and we get a spiritual body that we're going to carry with us for all of eternity. And he told us that right now, in this physical body, God's preparing us for the eternal body. And he tells us that it's coming. How can we be so sure? He said, I've given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And these are all things we covered last week. I'm just kind of highlighting them for you this morning. But perhaps the most glorious news was found there in verse 8. It says this, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We are confident, well pleased, that when we're absent from this body, we're present with him. That means for the believer in Jesus Christ, when we say goodbye to our broken down earthly tent, when our heart beats the last time, when our lungs fill with air that one last and final time, to be absent from this body is to be present with him. So we have the opportunity, we have the privilege of viewing death not as an ending or a final thing, it's a doorway into eternity with him. It's a transition, if you will, for the believer in Jesus Christ. And with this great promise in hand, Let's pick up there in verse 9, because Paul's going to tell us, hey, with all of these promises, with all of this hope, there's something that you need to be doing while you're here. Look there at verse 9. Follow along as I read uh, just the first few verses. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore. 
And those that have been here a while hear me say it all the time. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask yourself, what's it there for? What's it talking about? What's it referring to? It's usually referring back to what Paul just said. He's tying two passages together. He's tying two thoughts together. When we see that word, we know I have to go back to understand what I'm reading. I have to go back and make sure I understand what he just said. If I don't understand what he just said, I'm going to misunderstand the verse that he's trying to share with me or the, the thought that he's trying to tell me. But he says something, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to do what? To be well-pleasing to him. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. The phrase, make it our aim, it's one single word in the Greek language. We translate this one word, make it our aim. But it's one word in the Greek language. And it means this. It means to earnestly aspire to something. Earnestly aspire to something. Implying strong ambition for some goal. I'm trying to reach some goal earnestly. It also means to give or commit oneself wholeheartedly to something. Completely giving yourself over to something. And the way that the verb is written there, the way that the, the Greek word, the indication, it means this is something we are doing and it's something we must continually do. It's not something we just do for one day or one hour or one moment. It's something as a Christian we should be doing, we should be making it our aim to be pleasing to him both now, today, next in, 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 at 2 o'clock today, at 3 o'clock today, tomorrow, next month, next year. It should be something we continue to do with, the expect, with no expectation of being done until we see him face to face. Is it your aim while at home in this body to please him? Is that what you're aiming at? Now, being a former police officer, when I hear the word aim, my mind goes to guns because I aim at what I shoot at. That's how my mind works. And for some, I don't want to offend you, but that's, I think, aim. That, that, that's a perfect picture for me. When I, when I would go to firearms training, they would, say, they would set a target. they say, we want you to hit the target. I had to take the gun out. I had to aim it, and I had to hit the target to show proficiency in the weapon. But I only aimed at the target when I was trying to hit the target. So the other time, the gun was either in the holster, it was pointed in a safe direction, or something along those lines. Our aim at the target on the firearms range wasn't consistent. It was we only aimed for a short period of time. And then we holstered the gun or put the gun in a safe direction. The rest of the time, our weapon was put somewhere else. I'm concerned that in Christianity, our aim is not consistent. I'm concerned it's not a consistent aim. It's, it's all over the place. Oh, sometimes we're aiming to please the Lord, but that's not what this word means. It doesn't mean that we aim to please him when we feel like it. It means we are consistently aiming to please the Lord. Notice he didn't say you always have to hit the target. We fall short, don't we? We don't always hit. Most police officers don't always hit the target either when they're aiming. Not most, some. Sometimes you miss in life. That's the way it goes. And that's what Paul's saying here. But our aim, our focus, what we're shooting for, our target should be on pleasing him. Sometimes we're aiming to please the Lord and other times we're aiming to please ourselves. Sometimes we're aiming to please the Lord. Other times we're aiming to please someone else, like our parents, our boss, our pastor, whoever it is in your life that has influence. Sometimes you aim to please them. Can I encourage you right now that your aim should be to please the Lord all the time? And you don't need to worry about what someone else thinks of you. If you can aim to please him all the time, it doesn't matter what someone else thinks of you. I assure you, if you're trying to please a parent, they will be pleased if you're pleasing the Lord. If not, it's their problem and not yours. Because our focus should be pleasing him. Paul's telling us we should be constantly aiming. 
never coming off target to please the Lord while we're at home in this body. This should be our focus. Everything we, sh- everything we do should be centered around pleasing him. And you go, Rob, does that mean I have to be a missionary? No. It means you keep doing your daily life day by day, moment by moment, whatever he's called you to do. Just see it from a different perspective. See that if I'm a, if I'm a police officer, I'm going to do it to please the Lord. If I'm a plumber, I'm going to do it to please the Lord. If I'm a teacher, I'm going to do it to please the Lord. Whatever position the Lord has given me, I'm going to do it with the aim to please him. Do you see the difference? He also said there we are to aim to please the Lord when we're absent from the body. Well, how do we do that? You'll figure that out when you get there. You're not absent from the body. Right now we're at home in this body. Everything we do should be aimed at pleasing him. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered that today... We have an opportunity to please the Lord in this body that that opportunity is limited to while we're at home in this body. I know that was confusing. Let me say it another way. There are things we can do to please the Lord in this body that we will no longer be able to do when we leave this body behind. Does that make sense? There's things that we can do in our body today to please him that there's coming a day where you will no longer be able to do those things anymore. Let me explain it to you. Back up in verse 7, the Apostle Paul told us this. He said, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Last week, I made the point that right now on this earth, we are walking by faith. As Christians, we're walking by faith. We worship and follow a God that we have never seen. We haven't seen him. Oh, we believe he's there. We know he's there. We know the effects of him. We see the work that he's doing in our life. We're convinced he's there. We know it, but we are serving him. We are worshiping him. We are walking by faith. Matter of fact, Hebrews 11.1 gives us the definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen or better translated, not yet seen. We can't see it. That's why we're walking by faith. We can't see the future that's coming, but we know it's coming. We can't see the God we're worshiping, but we know he's there because we see the interaction excuse me, that he has in our life. But someday in the future, you're going to shed this physical body and you're going to come face to face with the Lord. And when you do, you will no longer need faith because you will be in his presence. You will then be in his sight. He will be in your sight. You will see him seated on the throne. You will see him in all of his glory. You will see all of his majesty. You will see his power unfold before you. You will see all, how it all fits together. It won't be a matter of faith anymore. It'll be a matter of wow. I finally can see what I couldn't see before. Our eyes will be opened. So if we're walking by faith now, and there's coming a day where we won't need our faith because we'll have his sight, that means that today, and as long as we're in this body, we have an opportunity to show him our faith. We have an opportunity to display our faith in a way that is only temporary. Because once we're with him, We're not going to have those opportunities anymore. So what kind of things could we do in faith to please the Lord? How could we display our faith? How could we show our faith? How about enduring a trial by faith? How about going through an illness or a difficulty by faith? How about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith? How about studying and believing the word of God in faith? Think of the angels. They're in his presence. They see all of that. They look at us and go, you guys are worshiping a God you can't see. And we get to experience his grace, which they don't. So God is manifesting a different side of himself in mankind than the angels have ever seen before. And when we get to 
We have the opportunity to bless him and walk in faith. How about stepping out and beginning a ministry in faith? How about starting a Bible study with your wife and kids by faith? How about forgiving someone who's wronged you in faith? They don't deserve it. Neither did you. How about doing something that the Lord has asked you to do by faith? How about walking in obedience? It takes faith, doesn't it? It takes faith. Seeking the Lord for direction in your life. How about just coming to the point, Lord, what do you want me to do? It takes faith. How about serving in a ministry or starting a ministry or just taking a step that you wouldn't normally take because you believe the Lord is leading you in that direction? These are just a few of the ways that we can exercise faith here on this earth and only while we're present here in this body. In this earthly tent, do we have the opportunity in all of eternity to exercise that faith? That's pretty amazing. I bet you never considered that before today, that you have the opportunity to please God in a way that is limited. You see the commercials on TV, but wait, time is limited, or but time's limited. There's, you, how much time? Do, well, how much time do I have, Rob? I, I don't know that. How much time do you have left on this earth? I, I don't know that. You don't know that. The Lord knows that. We have an appointed day, but the Lord. But, we, but you have the opportunity to exercise faith and live in faith. And when you do, it's going to make a difference. That's what Paul tells us. He gives us a reason there. He tells us why we should make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. He doesn't just say do it. He says, let me explain to you why. He tells us, look there in verse 10. He says, for we must, we must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When we pass from these bodies and we go on to see the Lord, we're going to have to give an account for what we've done in this body, whether good or bad. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I don't want to confuse you, so I want to make something clear to you. The Bible speaks of two coming judgments. The first one is known as the white throne judgment, or the first one we're going to talk about is the white throne judgment. The second one is called the judgment seat of Christ, which Paul's talking about right here. And they're two different judgments, and let me explain the difference to you. The great white throne judgment is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and I want to read to you what it says. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 20. I'll pick up in verse 11. You don't need to turn there, but you can if you want. It says this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea, the oceans, gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is what is commonly known as the, white, the great white throne judgment. I want to tell you this judgment can be avoided. It's not something that you're required to go through. I don't believe there'll be any Christians present at this judgment, at this great white throne judgment. It says they will be judged by their works. And anyone not found written in the book of life, it says, will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the Lamb's book of life. Maybe you've heard it called that. This judgment, this is what happens to the life of an unbeliever. 
Someone who says, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. You will face what's called this great white throne judgment. Those who reject Christ will be called back from the dead. They'll be placed before this great white throne in the presence and the glory of the Lord. And it says the books will be opened and all of their works will be in the books. And you will have to stand trial for your works before the Lord. And if you fail to present a perfect, unblemished life, you will be cast into the lake of fire because your failures are not covered by the blood of Christ. Because you're not written in the book of life. Well, how do I get in the book of life? You believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see, there's another judgment that's coming. The Bible speaks of it right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I want to ask you this question, and we're going to talk about it. As Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to, who's he writing to? The Corinthians. But who are they? They're Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. He's writing to the Christians. He tells them and us, he says, hey, as Christians, you, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. People get these two judgments confused. The word judgment seat, it's this, it's the bema seat, or the word literally means bema, and it literally means a step or a raised platform. It's a step or a platform. It's the place where a Roman magistrate or a Roman ruler would sit and pronounce judgment. If you remember when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, the people were calling for the death of Christ. They wanted him crucified. And Pilate didn't want to crucify him because he found nothing wrong with him. But the crowd of people said this. They said, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. You're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. John 19 tells us that Pilate, when he heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat. Sat down on the Bema seat. It's the place where judgment is passed. But this Bema seat, this judgment seat, it's also, has another, it's also used for another purpose. It's the place where a victorious athlete would receive their crown. It's where they would receive their reward for being victorious. Much like the medal stand of the modern Olympic day. You watch the Olympics, what happens? The, the gold winner, gold medal, they're on top, they're up high. That's what this judgment seat also acted as. It's a place where they would receive their crown. But I want you to notice, Paul said, we must all appear. He's talking to believers so that we, each one of us, may receive a reward for the things that we've done in the body, according to what we've done, whether it's good or bad. Let me say this to you, in that day, the full truth about our lives. The full truth about our lives, our character, our deeds will be made clear to us. You'll know exactly where you stand. We will discover the real verdict of our ministries, our service, our motives. All of our hypocrisy, all of our pretenses will be stripped away. And all the temporal matters with no eternal significance, they're going to vanish like the wood, hay, and the stubble. They'll be burned up. Only what is to be rewarded eternally, found eternally valuable, will be left standing. Remember, God doesn't see as man sees. God looks at the inside. He looks at the heart. He sees the, he sees the reason for the things that you do. We're not going to be judged on that day for our sin. Well, how do you know, Rob? How do you know it's not going to be our sin? Every sin of every believer was judged at the cross. It's already been judged. It's not going to be drugged back up. And it says he chooses to remember our sins no more. It's as far from the east as to the west. We don't have to go through that again. 
That, that judgment was taken, the judgment for our sin was taken care of at the cross. When God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because in Christ, we don't have to face a great white throne judgment where we will be judged for our works. But our works will be evaluated. That lets us know that what we do on this earth matters. At the cross, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became the curse for us. This judgment seat, this day of judgment, we will be judged. But it's going to be in order to receive our rewards and not to determine our eternal destiny. It's not whether we go to the lake of fire or not. The things we have done will be judged and the motives with which we did them will also be judged. Because we're pretty good at fooling each other sometimes. But we can't fool the Lord. You see, we must live and understand, very, very important, that the things that we do on this earth matter in eternity. They make a difference in eternity. It's, a, it's very possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. Think about that. It's possible. You can be saved, and you can be a Christian, and you can go on into eternity with the Lord, but you've completely wasted your life there. I'm afraid there's many people that do that. They don't, they don't live for the Lord. You see, this should be an encouragement in our service to the Lord. It should be something that entices us, it encourages us, it pushes us forward. It should remind us of the principle in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Paul knows that the troubles of this life, they're worth it. All that he endured, it's going to be worth it in the end. All that he went through, all the persecution, all the trials, all the difficulties, he knows that I will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, I make it my aim to please him as long as I'm in this body because it's going to matter someday. But I said something important and I don't want to skip over it. Not only do the things that we've done will be judged, but I said our motives will be judged too. And that's important. It's very possible to do the right thing with the wrong heart. You see, sometimes we can pretend that we're Christians doing the right thing, and it looks like we're doing the right thing. Everyone around us thinks we're doing the right thing, but our heart is far from the Lord. You know what it's like when someone tells you something, and you disagree with them inside, and you grit your teeth, and you mumble under your breath, and you do it anyways? Yes, you accomplished what they said. I did the thing that my boss told me to, my mom told me to. I did that thing, but where was your heart when you did it? Was it to please God, or was it, I don't want to get fired? I don't want to get in trouble. What, what's the heart say? You see, this is the difference between this judgment. It's, that judgment displayed your works, but you're going to be rewarded, not for the things you fooled people on, but for the things you truly had a pure heart in serving the Lord. Because it's very easy to get stuck in ministry and doing things for the Lord when you really want other people just to notice you. And you want them to see, oh, look how spiritual I am. Look what I've done. Look, look at me. This is nothing new. This is the same concept Paul spoke of back in 1 Corinthians chapter, 13, chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Do you see the difference? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Let's just pretend there's a guy who wants to be a pastor. But let's say that his motives are all wrong. 
See, not so much that he wants to be a pastor, he just likes perhaps the recognition that a pastor gets. He just wants people to tell him how great he is and how much, how much his message ministered to them or how, how he affected their life. And, and let's say the motives are off. And the guy goes through it, he does it, he becomes a pastor, he starts teaching the Bible, and he's sharing it, and the church grows, and people are getting blessed, and they start telling him all these things. And he, in, in his mind, he elevates himself rather than putting the focus on God. God's still going to use him. He's still going to use him. But when it comes time to stand for reward... The Lord might just look and say, you didn't do that for me, you did that for yourself. You didn't do that for me, you did that so you would get credit for it. You did that so you would get glory for it. You, did that for, you didn't do that for me. See, the things that we do for the Lord, they're done in secret. We don't want everyone to see, and we don't care if nobody notices. Because sometimes we do things for the Lord, and we go, well, I want someone to see. Look at me, look what I'm doing for the Lord. Other times, the true heart says, I don't care if anybody notices, I'm doing this for God. And God alone, and it doesn't really matter. As a matter of fact, I don't want any recognition here on this earth. It's better that I get my rewards in heaven. Do you see the difference? The appearance before Christ's judgment seat, see it as a privilege for Christians. It's our reward ceremony. It's not that we're concerned with the, our eternal destiny. We already know that. That's secured at the cross. But with the assessment of our works and the motivations with which we did them will become clearly apparent and we will be rewarded righteously. It should motivate us into Christian ministry and service towards the Lord and the Lord alone. For non-Christians, those that choose not to believe, well, the first judgment awaits you, the white throne judgment, where you will be judged on your works of this life. And that's usually what most people that choose not to believe ask for. I'm a good person, that's good enough for me. Very well, the Bible tells you what will, ta- will happen and you will be cast into the lake of fire. That's, that's very clear. And I don't say that in a way of, you know, I say that to convince you to become a believer, but I don't say that in a way of, I don't want to minimize it, or, and I don't want to say it's, it's not true. It's very, very much true. It should be something that you take serious. As believers, we need to come to the realization that things that we do on this earth are going to make a difference in eternity. That'll change the way you live next week. It'll change the way you schedule your day. Look at verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord... We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. The word for terror can also be translated reverence or fear. Since we know the fear of the Lord, since we have reverence for the Lord, Paul says we persuade men. Persuade men. He doesn't say we just tell people about Jesus. He says we persuade men. To persuade men should be at the heart of everyone who has the gospel in their very own heart. Don't you want what you've come to believe? Don't you want other people to experience the freedom that you have? Don't you want, as the Lord works in your heart and he removes things, anger, bitterness, forgiveness, and teaches you all these things, don't you want other people to experience that? Paul says we persuade them. We persuade them. We persuade them. We desire to share it. The word for persuade, it means to convince somebody to believe something and to act on the basis of what is recommended to convince them to believe what you're telling them and to get them to act on it. We don't simply throw out ideas without caring how people respond to them. I share the gospel, no big deal, it's up to them. No, we persuade them, he says. We don't just throw out the ideas. We should persuade them, convince them to act on your words. Bring them to a place of decision. This is serious, they still have to decide. I'll decide later. Well, you just decided not to follow if that's the case. In Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul was before King Agrippa. And after he laid out the gospel to King Agrippa, if you remember what, Paul, what King Agrippa said to Paul, he said this, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul did his job. 
He laid it out. You almost, if I wasn't king, then I, I, I see what you're saying. You know what Paul said to him? Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today. King Agrippa, I don't just want you to become a Christian. I want everybody. They might become both almost and together, such as I. Become just like me. And he goes, oh, by the way, except for these chains. Because he was in prison. He was, he was enchained. I want you to become just like me as a Christian, just minus the chains. Good, we don't want that part anyways, Paul. But if the Lord leads, would you be willing? You see, we don't do this. We don't persuade. We don't draw people to with the idea or the intention of receiving a, a temporary emotional response. You see, sometimes that's been done wrong, I think. Sometimes we can share the gospel. Sometimes pastors will share the gospel and they're looking for an emotional response in some way of collecting statistical data of perhaps somebody who got saved. There's nothing wrong with giving an altar call and people coming forward, but it, there comes a point where I need to persuade and then I need to let people make a choice. I don't want an emotional response. I want a life-changing choice. I want someone who's going to say, yes, I'll follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Not someone who says, I just don't want to burn in hell, but I want to keep living my life the way that I want to. You see, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Look there at verse 12 for me. <coughs> Paul says there to the church, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul's saying, are we commending ourselves? Are we bragging about ourselves? No. No, we're just simply giving you a reason as we talk to you and write to you and share with you what's going on in our lives. We're just telling you what's going on. Some people who came to Corinth, they bragged about their spectacular ministries. It was all about them. They didn't have a sincere heart, Paul said. Paul said it's all about the hearts. They would say things like, look how great our ministry is. Look, look what we've done. Look how many people we've led to Christ. You, you, you've heard these things. And it's not about the Lord. It's about us and the ministry. It's about look what, look, what, look, look what I'm doing, not look what God's doing. The Corinthian Christians liked those people who gloried in appearance and not in heart. They were more entertaining. There was more statistical data that drew them in. It was, more, it, it, was, it was interesting for them. They actually looked down on the Apostle Paul. Paul, why is your life so hard? Why are you sick? Why, are you so, why, why is it so difficult for you if you're, if you're following Christ? Paul says, as I'm talking to you about my struggles and my trials, I'm giving you a way to respond to false teachers. I'm telling you how to answer them. He showed them in his humanity that his words weren't empty, that he was living out what he was preaching. You see, sometimes those are only concerned about the outside. They're not really living what they're preaching. They're just telling you what they think that you want to hear so you will support them. And Paul says, the reason I tell you these things is not so you'll feel sorry for me, so that you'll know that I'm practicing what I'm preaching. This is my heart. This is what I'm living. Paul says, if you think I'm crazy, I'm only doing this to glorify God. If you think I'm beside myself, I'm only doing it to glorify God. If you think I'm in my right minds, I'm doing it for your benefit. It's so that you will see the, the, the life that we live. It's not just a life of, I'm not trying to get something from you. I'm trying to give something to you. And I'm going to persuade you with my life if that's what it takes. Paul should have deserted the church in Corinth a long time ago. They had deserted him a long time ago. But yet he kept on because he cared about them. He kept persuading them. In spite of all the false teachers that would come in, he kept writing. He kept visiting. He went there to try to persuade them. He didn't give up. And Paul says, there's one thing I want you to know. I want to explain to you why I do this. Look there at verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. 
Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul says, my ministry is motivated by the love of Christ. It's the very thing that compelled Paul to endure and persevere through all the trials and all that he went through. It was Christ's love for him that drove him to the ministry. Charles Spurgeon explained it this way. He said, to say the love of Christ compels us is to say that the love of Christ has power. It has a force that can bind us and influence us. The love of Christ had pressed Paul's energies into one force, turned them into one channel, and then driven them forward with a wonderful force till he and his fellows had become a mighty power for good, ever active and energetic. You see, it's the love that Paul says, God loved me so much, Christ loved me so much, that's what's driving me forward. That's, what's, that's why I'm pursuing this. Have you ever really considered the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for you? What is it driving you towards? What is it forcing you towards? What direction is it pushing you? Paul goes on to tell us if one died for all, then all died. Well, how is it that Jesus died for all? His death is able to save all who come to him. All those that are saved will be, he died for. As a result, Paul says, he, the work that Christ did on the cross, he died for all. Those that accept him can receive that work. He makes, it, he makes it rather clear there to me. If you join yourself to Christ by faith, then you've also died and spiritually risen again with him. That's what he's talking about. So since Jesus died for you, are you living for him? What's your, what are you aiming at? That'll tell you what you're living for. Paul's saying this is the right thing to do. We should no longer live for ourselves the way we did before we came to Christ. But for those who are willing, but, but he, we live for him because he's the one that's willing to die for us. It's, it's, it's worthy. If God created us for the purpose of living for him and not for ourselves, then it is a corruption of our nature that makes us want to live for ourselves. We don't, we shouldn't really, it's, it's a corrupt nature that says, I want to live for myself. See, we're created to live for him. Let me see if I can explain this one more way to make it clear. For the love of Christ compels us. Paul's saying the love that Christ has for me is compelling me to make it my aim to please him as long as I'm on this earth. What about you? What about me? You know, it's not just, oh, that compelled me last week, last month, or last year. What is compelling you forward this week coming up? Is it the love of Christ, the fact that you've been forgiven for your sins if you're a believer and you can go and go, I've got to go do the work of the Lord now. And that doesn't mean become a missionary or a pastor. It means just simply walk through my day, day after day, doing the job, that the, being a husband, being a wife, being a mom, being a dad, being a brother, being a sister, pleasing to the Lord. It's not something, you know, we, we miss that. We think ministry, we think, you know, missionary and pastor. and all, No, it doesn't. We all have a ministry before us tomorrow. Just within your own family, you have one. And since we have this problem, or this promise, Paul's saying, it's not a problem, it's a promise, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Since we hold on to this promise, we should make it our aim that as long as we're here, we're going to please him. Because we're going to spend eternity with him. If you can't worship him here, what makes you think you're going to want to worship him there? 
We do this because one day we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all that we've done for him will be put into the fire. It'll come out whatever was done truly for him. Whatever we've done with false motives will be pushed aside, will be burned up, will be left behind. But what we realize is the things that I do today on this earth, they're limited in time because I'm not going to be walking by faith forever. And they matter in eternity. Do you see how that works? When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you say, Paul, how could you accomplish so much for the Lord? He goes, let me tell you what I made it my aim to do, to please God. Let me tell you how I made it my aim to please God. I realized how much he loved me. When I realized how much he loved me, I wanted to please him. As I began to please him, he started doing this stuff through me. It's real simple. It works that way. While we are here, we persuade men with the gospel. It's the love of Christ that compels us to do this. May the love of Christ be the very thing that drives you until you take your last breath. Till your heart beats the last time. May it truly be your aim and mine to please him forever. We won't always hit our target. We're going to make mistakes. And we have his grace and his mercy for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross. But we will receive a reward for all those things that we do for him. Thank you for that promise as well. I'm convinced many of the rewards that we think we're going to get, we're not going to get them. We think we do great things. He goes, you got your reward. A lot of what I teach, you guys say, I had a great message. I got my reward. Man, you took it from me. I already got it. No, I'm just kidding. I don't care. I don't know how it all works, but I'm convinced that things that we do that nobody knows about, that's where the rewards fall. No one knows. It's just you and him where he says, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And you respond in faith and you do it. Let's pray. Father, you've given us quite an example in the Apostle Paul. And Lord, as we hear a study like this this morning, and we even come to the place where we go, yeah, I need to make it my aim to please him. Lord, would you show us how to do that? As we wake up tomorrow morning, would you tell us what it is that's pleasing you? And if we're doing something that's not pleasing you, would you convict us through the Holy Spirit? May we respond to that conviction and repentance and change. Lord, may it be the heart of every person here, whether they're regular or just visiting, to spend the rest of their life pleasing you. Lord, may we come to the realization that we believe in faith the truth. The things that we do here are going to matter in eternity. And may your love for us be what drives us for the rest of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.